This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Female Centrics. We are the female-hosted fish community podcast, and I am your host, Donnie B. We have a great interview this episode. Gordon Hukalo is a sound engineer for Junta, Fish's platinum-winning first album. And over the next two episodes, you're going to hear all about Gordon's background and what led him to be the sound engineer for this album. We discuss everything from the tech side and recording equipment, and we break down each song that's on Junta as it was recorded. Gordon has been engineering, mixing, and supervising teams to deliver exceptional sounding shows and albums for over 40 years now. Includes an Emmy nomination for Marvel's Spider-Man on Disney XD, along with sound design for Treehouse Detectives and other movies on Netflix, Rainbow Butterfly Unicorn Kitty for Nickelodeon, Scooby-Doo for Warner Brothers, and along with an entire collection of Marvel Rising for Marvel Animation. He supervised the award-winning show Babylon 5, as well as working on Dungeons & Dragons. And he's mixed and mastered for Sony Online Entertainment, Disney, Marvel, while continuing to create new workflows and development and team building as a consultant. Um. So one of the things that we're going to talk about it uh, that I will give information for is that Gordon's really looking to get back into producing and sound engineering albums. So if you or a friend have a band out there that you are looking to put together an album, we'll be able to have his information for you in the show notes. And also just for you to know, you can contact him at admin at gdhdigital.com. So, as a reminder, we are part of the Osiris Podcast Network, and man, have people been busy here. So, mention a few of the, the podcasts we've got going on that are coming out, uh, that have been out over the past week or so. So, there is a podcast by Eric Krasno called Plus One, and Eric is interviewing the world-renowned saxophonist Branford Marsalis, which is... He's just amazing. Also, um, on Salute the Songbird, Emmy-nominated actress and singer Chrissy Mez joins Maggie on this week's episode to talk about her work on This Is Us and recording her first album and her book called This Is Me. Undermine is going on their second episode. So their first episode came out with an, on number eight of the Apple podcast list for new podcasts, which is pretty exciting. And so they are going to be rolling into this episode. They are discussing about, you know, how they can go from playing in a cafeteria to 
you know, in gigs at UVM to selling out Madison Square Garden in 10 years. So uh, they're going to be backing up a bit to shows from 83 and to 86 and talking about um, their shows at Nectar's and Doolin's. Another episode, another podcast we've got going on is Groove Therapy. And in this episode, Tara Lee Weathers and Dr. Leah Taylor caught up with Marco and Katie Benevento to talk about the idea of using time for fun. So in just a moment, we are going to be speaking to Gordon Hukalau. So a lot of people that we interview when we talk about their fish story, especially people who started seeing shows back in 1.0, their first songs came from Junta. And that was exactly my experience. My first time ever hearing fish was that, you know, classic older brother, you know, at a friend's house. They pushed play. Fee came on my life changed. So I'm pretty excited to have this opportunity to speak to Gordon. He is an awesome guy. When um, a few weeks back, I was able to speak to the kids who were the ones who sang on the, in the background of Contact. We I interviewed uh, Justin and Lindsay Cook, whose father, Howard Cook, owned Euphoria Studios that Howard worked for. And parts of that interview will be highlighted on an episode of Undermine coming up. So when I was speaking to them, they said, oh, you know, we might be able to get in touch with Gordon. And so Justin just randomly gave Gordon a call. And it's great because he hadn't talked to him in years and told him what was going on. And before you know it, Gordon and I were on the phone for about an hour and a half just talking about everything, all kinds of music and 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 whatnot. It's just been great to get to know Gordon and uh, I can consider my friend and I'm pretty excited to share all this inf- information with you. It's hilarious and intimate and just wonderful. And for all you tech people out there, the details of all this is going to blow your mind. So anyway, so uh, thank you everyone for joining us and we will be right back with Gordon Hukalo. All right, we are back with Female Centrics, and our guest today is the sound engineer from Fish's first album, Junta. So I am very happy to introduce everybody to Gordon Hukalo. Welcome, Gordon. Well, hello there. So happy to have you on here. So happy to be here. Yay. <laughs> I love how, you know, just random friend is not even a fish head. It's just like, oh, by the way, kids I went to school with were the kids who sang on Contact. And then I end up talking to them and they're like, oh, you know, I think we know Gordo. You know, we could still get in touch with Gordo. And then you and I have just been like best friends for the past two weeks. <laughs> It's been awesome getting to know you. I've really enjoyed our chats. Yeah, yeah, me too. It's it's great when you just kind of, you know, flow with the conversation and then just even we're texting about, you know, suggesting music and all of that. It's just, it's been, it's been great. So I'm really happy to have you on here and to have us get going on this. 
Well, thank you. I, I've kind of been looking forward to getting a chance to to chat about this for a while anyway. Just uh, just watching fish explode into the monster band that they are now. Right, exactly. Well, and, you know, and, and specifically this album, you know, they we break up the fish genres into, you know, 1.0, just those early years, and then they took a, a hiatus, and then 2.0, and then they took the four-year hiatus, and then 3.0, and now that the pandemic is here, we're now about to move into 4.0. And so for us 1.0 people, uh, Junta was an album that really introduced a lot of us to the band Fish and is just so significant uh, for a lot of us. So, you know, <clears throat> it's a big part of this. So it's it's great. Well, Junta introduced me to the band Fish because awesome. I had no idea who they were. <laughs> uh, you know, it's the band from Vermont called our booking manager and uh, they wanted to do a demo and they came down and boy, did they kick ass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so most interviews, I start with the same question. What is your fish story? So, you know, clearly hard work and dedication put you in a studio with this, you know, quirky band from Vermont. So we're going to back it up a little bit. And I want to know where where you grew up and how did you get into music? Ah, well, okay. So I was born in Boston and grew up in a little town east of east, west, east. Wait a minute. I'm, I'm on the West Coast, so I always get confused now. Sure. Uh, if you go too far east in Boston, you end up in the ocean, right? Yes. So west. So west of Boston, about 10 miles west of Boston is a, a little town called Needham. Oh, yes. And the interesting thing about Needham is that it might be one of the only towns in Boston where nobody really got a Boston accent. What? Yeah. How is that? I, I, I mean, I, I mean, do I sound like I have a Boston no, accent? No, no, not at all. Well, my accent hasn't changed. Interesting. It's pretty much the same that it's always been. Yeah. Uh, ex except when I went to work in Revere, where they <laughs> drop their R's. So all over. If, you, if you're in if you're in Revere, you're dropping your R's. You know, you're in Revere. Revere. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, it cracks me up because you can even hear it when people are like, like uh, when they were doing the contact, when I interviewed the contact kids and you hear them in the background, the teachers saying, you know, the car on the road. <laughs> 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 Too funny. So let's see what else. Um, How'd you start right. getting into music? Because, you know, I guess, you know, leading into my next couple of questions are, you know, are you from a musical family and uh, what bands or styles of music first influenced you? Well, let's see. Uh, when I was really young, uh, uh, I was kind of brought into the world by a musical family. My dad was a pretty interesting character. He grew up in Boston. Mm -hmm. Uh, he went to school there and then enlisted in the Army, of all things, for World War II. Mm. Uh, and he was an aircraft chief mechanic guy. Where was he? Was, stationed? He, he was stationed in the Pacific. I don't really know exactly where. Yeah. He, he, pa he passed a while back, so My I My grandfather I was as well. Him. But that was really cool, and that actually kind of set him off on uh, really loving aircraft and flying and what have you, and that kind of, you know kind of, I don't know, uh, I picked that up as well and I became a pilot and what have you. So really? that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
I got my pilot's license in 83. So that was, that was a lot of fun. Anyway. Um, so he also, the, another interesting thing about him was he had this really amazing eye. So he became the army photographer. Hmm. Um, so he, was both like the crew chief and the photographer, but he loved music and harmonica was his instrument of choice. So um, when he got back stateside, uh, he came to LA and lived here for a while. He became the uh, photographer of choice for a lot of the Hollywood scene. Uh, he took pictures of like Bing Crosby, Jimmy Durante, Frank Sinatra, Abbott and Costello. Wow. People like that. I have this incredible book of these original photographs of 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 these guys that he took, and oh my god, it's I, I cherish this book so much. It's such a beautiful. Oh my memento. goodness, that is awesome. We'll have it's to a, FaceTime sometime. I would love to see that. I'm super into those. Oh yeah, I love photos and I love any like older like you know vintage things and whatnot. That that's a treasure for sure. It is. It really is. So anyway, while he was working out here in L.A., um, so the story goes, there was a musician strike. And so most of the studio players were not working. Record companies, of course, were kind of upset about that. They wanted to keep on putting out records. So my dad was in a harmonica group. And somebody somewhere put together this thing where they ended up in Les Paul's garage home studio where they recorded some 78s with Danny Kay and the Andrew sisters. Wow. And, and um, I mean, just the fact that he recorded in Les Paul's garage right? studio, it, it, it just totally blows my head off. I mean, the guy who invented the electric guitar and multi-track recording, right? Yes, yes. And so your dad was so, there doing this. My dad was there, and I actually transcribed uh, four sides of these 78s, which I do have. And it's, it's, it's awesome. It's, yeah. it's, it's so cool. <laughs> it's so cool. So that, that's my dad's side. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, he, he was also, of course, one of the big bands and what have you. Uh, my mom grew up in Boston, too. Uh, she, uh, uh, she, she went to uh, BU Business School and BU Music School mm -hmm. and then got a scholarship to New York at the conservatory. And she was an opera singer. <sighs> I'm, so, I'm classically trained. I have just said, like, I don't sing much anymore and I didn't take it much past college, but, oh my God, do I love opera. Love opera. That is just amazing. It was very much in her blood. Uh, when she married my dad, they opened a chain of photography studios around Boston. And so they kind of pulled their, uh, you know, her business acumen and my dad's, uh, excuse me. <laughs> And my dad's, uh, you know, photography art, artisan, art, artisanism, whatever you call it, mm -hmm. uh, together. And, uh, man, they had more awards on their walls than I could count. It was, it was kind of intimidating going into their studio. Yeah, <laughs> was, yeah. So that kind of gave me the entrepreneurial bug. And, uh, you know, while I was growing up with them, uh, there was music everywhere, you know, Glenn Miller, Tommy Dorsey, um, a lot of jazz, uh, a lot of classical, um, all, all, uh, there was always music in the house, always yeah. music happening. Now, and did you go see live music with them as well? Mm, 
With the exception of helping my dad shoot some stuff, not really. Okay, so not like going to actual concerts and that sort of thing. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, you know, you're growing up with these, you know, big bands and jazz and your dad, you know, all these phenomenal stories and this and that. And, you know, so there, there comes a point in kids like, you know, for me, I grew up with Crosby, Stills and Nash. Uh, Harry Chapin was big in, in my house when I was young and whatnot. And then, you know, all of a sudden it was, you know, Michael Jackson or Madonna and, um, you know, Appetite for Destruction. That was the first one that was like, oh, there's like something naughty going on here, you know, with these guys. So what were the bands or style of music that first started to, you know, influence you outside of your parents' music? Outside of my parents, do I dare say. <laughs> uh, okay, I, I guess I can say this because my parents bought me this record. Uh, I was into a bunch of 45s that they have, they had around at the time, but my, my parents bought me a Partridge Family record. Ooh, okay, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the production was good on it. What the hell? Yeah. Um, but then uh, I started getting 45s and I got The Doors. Mm. You know, Hello, I Love You, um, stuff like the that. The Gateway Band. Them and, them That's and right. Pink Floyd, right? <laughs> Uh, Pink Floyd came a little later in my life. I was still pretty young around this time, maybe 10, sure. something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, so you know, started to listen to that stuff. A- again, really early, really young uh, before I started doing anything else. Uh, my dad was also a recording uh, fanatic. He always had reel-to-reel decks around the house. So... Like when family would come over, we would always gather around the piano in the living room. And uh, and my aunt was a very, very good keyboardist. Mm-hmm. And everybody sang. And so my dad had a few mics and this really small little mixer. And, you know, around 10, I guess, I, I just started recording people. And I thought that wow. was really a fun thing to do. Uh, so... Like every couple of years, my dad would upgrade his reel-to-reel decks and he would give me the hand-me-downs. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So it was kind of like a natural progression and I just got hooked. I I just got totally hooked on it until I was about 15 when I said, okay, I I, I really want to do this for real. And my parents were so supportive. They gave me the entire basement and they let me turn one of the rooms into a control room. And then the rest of the basement was for bands like junior high and high school bands. Now, what year was this? And I, I was about 15 years old. Mm-hmm. So what year was that? I would say probably around 70, 70, 70 yeah, around 70, 71. Okay. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Um, and, you know, I, I really couldn't afford like a great mixer. So because I was... I don't know, people say gifted, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I understood electronics. So I bought some inexpensive mixers and then got inside and figured out how they worked and then built a whole bunch of extra input channels to them so that I would have enough uh, mic inputs to be able to record these bands. And so that was when I started to, to actually learn how to record. Sure. Uh, totally, totally on my own. Uh, I didn't have any equalization. So, you know, mic placement was the thing. It was like you learned where to put the mics, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, you know, that again, that, 
totally starting out newbie, you know, what have you. But, um, and from there on out, I mean, I took a few detours, but kept recording. Yeah. Yeah. So was it, did it become almost, was it like a hobby at first and then, or were you like, this is what I want to do? It was never a hobby. It was like, ever since I was 10, I knew what I wanted to do. Mm. I knew I wanted to produce an engineer. You know, to to be that young and to know what you want to do, I actually found a little paper I wrote from sixth grade recently, and it was a paper on what do you want to do when you grow up, and it was I want to be a teacher, and you know, and so right out of college, that's what I that's what I did. I was driven from the beginning. Both my parents were teachers, and you know that sort of thing. So um, it is it's it's good to start young and just keep moving with what you're passionate about. That is so awesome that you had that insight at that age. So many people that I talk to are like, you know, they're in college and they're going, I, I have no idea what I want to do. Yes. <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm like going, damn, that must suck. Mm-hmm. Well, and then <laughs> you, you know? end up walking out with either a degree you're not that passionate about or four years in a school loan and no degree. I mean, there's a lot of that going on. And it's, you know, I really, I think that, that if, you really don't know what you're going to do right out of high school. That that like year, the leap year they talk about is is so important. And then just wait. <laughs> Freaking loans are tough, you know? Yes. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that That's a really sad reality right now is mm-hmm. you have to go into debt, uh, an insane amount of debt to be able to get a degree now. It's mm-hmm. crazy. So you start getting into the record, into recording. And what would you say was like your first big break or when did you first get into a studio with a band or the first album, you know? Boy, um, first big break. I'm not sure that I ever really had a big break. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was more of just like a slow burn. Sure. Um, yeah, it was a slow burn. I, I occasionally would kind of change venues I would find other people who were passionate about recording and become partners with them and we would set up recording studios we combined our gear and uh you know and and then it went of course from uh you know working in my basement with high school bands and stuff like that um after taking some double e classes uh at Wentworth Institute and some stuff at MIT um just kind of kept on forging forward and uh, got to know more of the talent around Boston at that time before the bars changed uh, their drinking age from 18 to 21. Boston was a pretty hot music scene. So I got to know a lot of bands and we would kind of lure them (laughs) or sell, sell them or whatever. Hey, let's make a record, you know? And so did that at, a, you know, a bunch of different places. Um, but I still wasn't getting the kind of quality of bands that I was looking for. So I was looking in the want ads and I saw an ad from a place called Euphoria Sound and they were looking for a new chief engineer. So I called this guy named Howie Cook. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I drove to Rivia. <laughs> and and went to Ravia and met <laughs> met Howie. We got along really, really well. And I just kind of signed up and stayed with him for about eight years. Uh, we kind of turned it into a partnership eventually. And yeah, we, we ended up doing a whole bunch of stuff there. 
So that's what I was going to ask you. What, what were the other bands, I guess, what did you work on together before or albums before Junta? Oh, my God. There were so many. Uh, again, mostly local Boston bands. Um, let's see. So some names that people might know might be Johnny Thunders, uh, Rick Danko from the band, uh, Jimmy Miller, who is the producer of the Rolling Stones. He came in and produced some stuff with us. Um, there was Dee Dee Stewart. Um, o Positive was a band that almost they almost broke out of Boston. They were they were amazing. I feel like I, and I remember what what style of music was that? Oh God, what category would you put it in? It kind of alternative rock. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind kind of alternative rock. Yeah, they they were great, and uh, we we ended up having a really great relationship, and they invited me over to the Cars Studio. Uh, Rick Ocasek studio to uh, remix some of their stuff for some of the releases. So that was really a lot of fun to be able to work in that studio. That was great. Sure. Sure. So you're working in Revere and you're, you know, you've met Howard Cook and you're at Euphoria. So can you walk us through how Fish got in touch with you and what it was like preparing for this album with them? And did you meet with them in person first or a few times or phone calls? Well, the first session, uh, they called the studio manager Mm -hmm. and they, I don't remember if they came into town and auditioned studios. A lot of the bands were doing that who were local. They would go to about five or six different studios and listen to the different kind of work that everybody was doing. And then they would pick a studio to go to. Uh, I don't know if they did that or not. Uh, I, I honestly don't remember. What I do remember is that they booked a, uh, a three-day demo session in 88. And what, what month was that? I couldn't tell you. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what so was the exact was, date? Yeah. <laughs> it was, what, what, like 33 years ago? Mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. <laughs> something like that. Um, I can tell you that the songs we recorded during that session were as Golgi Apparatus... Fee, Fluffhead, and David Bowie. Okay, okay. And that was in 88 or 87? Because that was... That wasn't... I think it was 88. It, it's possible it was 87, but... I think that, I found. I, yeah, I, go ahead. I found something on the web that said that, that the sessions were in 88 and 89, but... Oh, sure. Uh, it could have been 87 and 88. Okay. I honestly don't remember. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they booked it for three days to knock out these four songs. Right. Right. So they came in and, uh, you know, we, we sat down and we had a little powwow about what they were about and what they were looking to do. And the, the real interesting thing for me is that they wanted to play live. And that's something that most of the bands didn't do. There were a few bands that played live, but most didn't. So there's this thing that you do in recording, at least back when you're recording real instruments and real bands, uh, which is called basics. And basics is when you lay down the bass guitar, the drums, uh, a rhythm guitar of some kind uh, that just kind of keeps you going and a scratch vocal. That's usually what the basics are. And then you do overdubs on top of that to, to build the rest of the song. 
Uh, Fish was a bit different in that they just, they wanted to set up and just play the song from beginning to end. So when I have a band set up, I ask them not to play whatever it is we're going to be recording just Mm -hmm. so that it stays fresh. So we got the sound checked. Everything sounded pretty good. Uh, There were some interesting challenges in that they were all in the same room, which was a pretty big room, but uh, the drums were spilling into the piano mics and that can get a little dicey. It can get a little muddy and what have you, but we worked it out. We figured out you know, where to place everything and how to keep everything pretty clean. Um, and then I said, okay, let's do the first song. So I hit record and they started playing Fluffhead, mm-hmm. um, which was, you know, the beginning of it, just pretty pedestrian, pretty easy going, nothing super special. Then they kick in a Fluff's journey. <laughs> and I don't know if it was my jaw that hit the floor first, <laughs> my body that hit the floor first, or whatever it was. But after listening to a little bit of this and noting that they were not reading charts, this was all coming from their heads. And the changes were just unbelievably fantastic. I'm a big prog rocker. We didn't get into that part of the music that I like, but I'm a, I'm in a, in a prog. So, you know, they clearly tapped into almost all of the bands that I was into. And I'm just kind of going, Oh my God, who are these guys? Right. So, so I ran out to the, to the uh, office and I said, guys, you gotta come and <laughs> you gotta come and hear these guys. They're just freaking believable. And so they do one take uh, of this tune all the way through. Uh, there's no editing involved in any of these songs. No editing whatsoever. Wow. So they go through one and they go, hey, how was it? And I went, it was good. You know, let's do another one. Just just, just to get it down. Let's just do another one. Right. So they do, they do another one. And I'm pretty sure the second one was the one, you know, they came into the control room and they listened to it down. We listened to both of them. And we all agreed, yeah, the second one was the one. So that's when, well, we would normally do overdubs, but because it was a short session, it was only three days, we did the, I'm going to call it basics, even though they all played live, for all four of the songs. And we and we knocked out, I'm pretty sure we knocked them all out in one day. We got them all on tape on one day. Uh, but, but that was before overdubs. Gotcha, gotcha. Now, you, I believe that you and I were talking about... Um, th- with that first session that there's a sound difference between this one, between that session and the next one that came up. It had something to do with Trey wanting to change something or something along those lines. There were a couple, there were a couple of things that, that were different. One was, is the first session was recorded all in one room. It was before we had our drum booth. Okay. Um, so that was one of the things, uh, the second thing was, is that, you know, we were knocking it out, doing it fast. When it, when it comes to mixing, and this is just in general anyway, I always kick the band out of the control room when I start to mix because I need to get to a baseline. Mm-hmm. I need to, you know, just get to a point where the mix is under control and it's sounding good. You know, I was doing it for, for long enough at that point that, you know, I knew how to get it and get it pretty close to the pocket, then invited them in and, you know, everybody has their thing to say, you know, hey, turn up my bass. I mean, they weren't like that, but. Sure. Um, and, 
you know, they were listening to it and they were going, you know, there's a little too much processing on this. You know, this is sounding a little too slick. So kind of went back and forth with them. It was mainly Trey that had, had the objection. So I ended up kind of backing off on, on some of the, the studio sound that I had going on there, going a little bit more raw. I, I didn't bring it all the way down to raw. Mm-hmm. And and Trey agreed, it, you know, we, we needed something to kind of glue it together. So, you know, we kept some of the delays I had and some of the reverbs and some of the other stuff that was going on. And, you know, it, I think it sounds good. It came out good. Um, so that was that was the first session. The second session, we had the drum booth, which really cleaned up a lot of stuff because the drums weren't spilling into the, um, the piano mics anymore. Sure. And uh, so that helped. Uh, that helped a lot. And also, uh, for that session, we rented a few extra really nice mics. So I, I wanted to get a little bit of a sweeter sound on Fishman's uh, cymbals. So uh, we got uh, some Neumann KM84s for the, uh, for the overheads and, and a few other mics. I can't really remember what Did what they got, show up but... with their own mics duct taped to hockey sticks? Yeah, that was a real problem. <laughs> That was that was that that was a real problem. It it was really hard to get you know a clean sound every time they would like hit the stick against somebody's head. head. I'm dying. Yeah, I was kind of yeah. joking. I didn't really think that. Oh, that's the best. Oh yeah, it was, it was amazing watching Trey like bashing Paige over the head with a hockey stick. You know, it's, it was. I've never seen anything like that before. Well, yeah. So, like, what was their demeanor like? I'm just dying right now. Excuse me. Um, what was their demeanor like when they came in? Because they're real young, and this is like new for them. And this is before, like, you know, like the sex, drugs, and rock and roll kind of thing kind of kicked in for them, and all that sort of thing. You know, like, what? How were they like? They were kids. Yeah, yeah. They they with they were sticks. kids. Yeah, with hockey sticks, just just getting. You know. I think they were just finishing school around that time. Sure. And uh, yeah, who are these upstarts from Vermont anyway? Who are these guys? Yeah. You know, who who knew that, you know, Ben and Jerry's was going to make a an ice cream named favorite. after them? You know? Right. Yeah. Or like sell out Madison <laughs> Square Garden for 20 years on New Year's Eve. Yeah. Like, what? Yeah. I mean, who, you, you can say who knew, but it was pretty obvious. Uh, there were bands that came through that were... It was pretty obvious that they had some kind of legs and they were going to go someplace. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, they, 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 it was great. So then they disappeared. Uh, you know, we, we finished the mixes on those. And uh, then they decided that they wanted to come back and do something a little more serious. And so they booked two weeks and came in and we recorded the rest of what became Junta. Wow. Wow. So... Before we get into the actual recording sessions with the band, I want to chat about the tech side of Junta. So this is a piece of of this interview I don't know a lot about, and so bear with me, everybody. If I'm, if I, you know, I think I've got the questions down and whatnot, but I'm gonna kind of roll with what you with with your answers, and, and because uh, there's a lot of people that are really into the tech side of of these things. So we'll start with. So you kind of talked about the mics, but. If you want to give a little bit more on what the mics that were used. Sure, sure. Um, so I'd like to start out by saying, boy, man, mm-hmm. <laughs> for the first sessions, what did we use on the mics? Uh, okay, so 
uh, Electro Voice RE20 on the kick. Um, Sennheiser 421s on the toms. Uh, AKG 451 on the overheads for the first sessions. Uh, 451 on the top of the snare, which a lot of people who know about this stuff might go, wow, what about the bleed from the hi-hat? That must be kind of harsh. And and yeah, it is. You got to get it just right. But the trick was also using a 57, an SM57 on the bottom of the snare. So did that. Uh, I used my favorite guitar amp mic of all time. I've tried every single mic on guitar amps and my favorite guitar amp is the still. tried and true the try still nice. the tried and true uh SM57 uh Shure SM57. Um there mi- I might have double mic'd it and I don't remember what the second mic was if I did. Mm-hmm. Uh but I do remember that. Uh then for let's see, for Mike's bass, um, we did two things. I mic'd his amp, and we also did something called a DI, which is a direct right from the bass itself going straight into the mixing console. So I was able to mix between the kind of crunchy, you know, you know, ballsy bass amp and the the clean sound coming right out of the guitar, going out of the board. Um, for Paige, on the Yamaha piano we had in the studio, I used a couple of uh, Neumann 89s. And uh, he also had his Hammond B3 organ, which is, it, it's just a legendary yes. organ. Everybody still uses it. It's awesome. And he had, and of course, he had the Leslie with it. So I mic'd the top and the bottom of the Leslie, and I... Forgive me, I don't remember the mics I used on that. But the reason why I did that was to get this really cool stereo effect. So for when the Leslie was spinning, uh, you know, if you listen to the record, especially in headphones, you'll hear that the organ is kind of like you know, swimming around your head. Ah, okay. As as fish should, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so did they bring their own... They brought obviously they brought all their own equipment, or is there anything there that you had that they used as well? Everything that we recorded, as far as musical instruments goes, they brought, with the exception of a Glockenspiel, which we'll talk about later. All right, awesome, awesome. So with Paige, you uh, mentioned he brought the Hammond, and I'm assuming. Like he's not rolling in a stand-up piano or anything. So what? No, no, no. We yeah. had a grand piano. Okay. Okay. Yeah, sure. We, yeah. Yeah. The studio had a, had a Yamaha grand. Great. So what type of equipment boards do you use? The mixing console that we used for this session uh, was a Soundcraft 800 series. It was set up for studio work. You can configure the board for live or studio. And that board's based on the uh, Soundcraft 8000. I Again, I don't know who's listening to this. I don't know how old you are, <laughs> but uh, a lot of people certainly knew the 8000. It was kind of a staple um, for, I would say, mid-range studios. Mm-hmm. Uh, had, had a really sweet British or English sound to it. Uh, loved the equalization in it. Um, I did a few mods to it. Uh, put in some new capacitors just to clean it up just a tad, just, just to make it sound a little sweeter. Mm-hmm. How about the tape unit? Uh, the tape deck uh, was uh, an Otari MTR 90 Mark II 16-track 
two inch. And the reason why 16 track is kind of important is because most people at that point in time were using 24 inch, uh, I'm sorry, 24 track two inch, which means you have less track width, which means it's going to be noisier. Okay. So 16 track was really the sweet spot. 16 track two inch was was really the sweet spot uh, at at that time. Great. And were most studios have, providing 16 tracks, or was or were you fairly unique or new with this? Depends what city you're in, I suppose. Sure. Uh, there were a bunch of 16 track studios around Boston. A lot of them were one inch. Uh, some were two inch. There were one or two 24 track, uh, studios around Boston around that time. Maybe more than a few, actually. That was kind of in the late eighties. So Mm -hmm. yeah, more people were getting into the 24 tracks at that time. And how about the primary preamps? Ah, the preamps, uh, probably people will be surprised. Uh, I used the uh, preamps that were in the 800 that were in the mixing console. Nice. Nice. So um, you, they brought their own instruments and whatnot. Do you remember what styles or, or brands of the, the instruments that they were playing besides the Hammond? Oh, God. <laughs> uh, for some reason, I think that, uh, that Mike was playing a Rickenbacker, but I, I can't be sure of that. I, I can't be sure of that, and yeah, I don't know. Gotcha. I don't know, so I'm I, I'm I'm just gonna pass on that. We'll question. pass on that one. All right. <laughs> so, um, did you you had put part of an email that you had um, connected we, with me about about setting up the sixteen tracks in a special way? So. This was something, again, is, and I'm not 100% sure how to ask you about it. You had talked about um, that you had learned to, how to bias and align the 16 track to sound super clean as long as you didn't go over the technical level. Do you want to yeah, okay. talk about that? Sh- sure. Okay, so this is for the super nerds out there. <laughs> so so if you're not a super nerd, you can kind of like go get, you know, some fish food or <laughs> something else and, you know, just, just kind of bypass this. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, so by that time in my career, um, I had learned to bias and align tape decks really well. Um, back then, there was this thing called bias, um, which is a high-frequency signal that helped make the tape linear. I understand we live in a digital world now, and most people don't even know what tape is anymore. Right. Um, but back then, it was analog was 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 a real interesting mistress because on the low end you were fighting off noise and on the top end you were fighting off distortion sure. uh with today's digital stuff 32-bit floating point you really kind of don't have that problem on either end unless you're really doing it wrong um so uh the magnetic flux that i had set the deck to was 250 nanowebers per meter uh and I had learned both from using my ears and also using test gear that if I went 10 dB above that level, um, that this particular tape deck would start to sound really horrible. Mm -hmm. So I had some special meters that showed me exactly, you know, how hard I was hitting the deck. 
excuse me. And uh, that was basically, that was the sweet spot. That was, so, you know, before every session I would, I would get out all of my tools and my test equipment and I would align every single track on the tape deck. And um, yeah, and, and just basically uh, do that. that. So that's how I set the deck up. Um, I can go on as far as other techniques that I learned how to record to that deck if you think people sure, are Sure, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so um, I found after probably about a good 15 years of developing my tracking technique that um, re recording and capturing a really great performance with as many transients as you could get, again, analog, transient, could be distortion, um, I found that not using any limiting or compression, going to the tape deck where I could get away with it, in other words, not hit that plus 10 point, mm -hmm. uh, wow, what a difference that made to everything that I was tracking at that point. In fact, a bunch of people were kind of commenting to me, uh, especially if they took the tapes out of our studio and uh, and took them someplace else to mix. They sure. would call me up and they would go, how on earth did you get such a clean recording? <laughs> and so anyway, that, that was like my magic sauce at the time. I've been doing this since I was 10. <laughs> yeah. That was, yeah, yeah, you learn through the school of hard knocks, right? let me tell you. Yeah, definitely, definitely do. Um, you know, because before that it was, you know, everybody's going, oh no, you got to compress this. You got to, you know, you got to limit that. You got to side chain. You got to do all this crazy stuff. For tracking, I learned use as little processing as you possibly can. Now, there was an exception. I did use a enough EQ, especially on the drum kit, because back then I didn't have an EQ section on the monitor section, which meant that I couldn't preview the way that I was going to have the microphones equalized during the mix. So I needed to know how the mics were going to sound, where they, excuse me, where they were um, with EQ. So I did track with EQ. I did track with EQ. But other than that, um, okay, the kick drum, I, I had to use a compressor on because it's just way too transient and it, it would have hit that plus 10 limit. There are a few other things like the snare, I think, um, and vocals, vo vo vocals a bit, but again, as little as possible, you know, when uh, I tried to save that stuff for the mix, sure. basically get, get, get as much of it as you can. I mean, now again, with the digital stuff, you don't need to use any processing at all. You can just go straight into your digital recorder and you just don't have to worry about it until you mix. So was all, were all these things figured out when, cause you said they played live. So did you have all these things set and ready to go and then they play and then you say, afterwards when you say the mixing that's when you sort of bring in different components you know bring up a level bring down a level that sort of piece yeah okay yeah 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 exactly so i mean you know all of these things weren't like preset before the band came in sure. every band sounds different all the drums sound different uh you know back then 
most of the drummers that I worked with were inexperienced, so I would help them tune their drums and, you know, pad them so that they sounded right and what have you. And, and, and then, of course, I would have to, you know, met, you know I kept on, I'd ha- I would have an assistant engineer that kept on moving the mics for me and I would keep on changing EQ. And like I said, that, that hi-hat splash going into the 451, that was something that I was very aware of and wanted to avoid. Um, so all of that was figured out during the tracking phase. Uh, after that, uh, as far as like creative stuff, reverbs, delays, um, other compression effects, noise gating, any stuff like that, did all of that in the mix. Okay, great, great. All right, so we are going to take a quick break and we're going to jump right into the actual recording sessions with Fish uh, for Junta. We'll be, re- we'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to Female Centrics. We are interviewing the sound engineer from Junta, Gordon Hukalo. Hello, Gordon. Hello, Don. <laughs> so we have been talking a lot about your early days of recording and how you got into it and the tech piece of recording Junta. And now we are going to go into the actual songs and whatnot. So... Jinta's song track is so diverse. You've got like Fee and Esther that tell these stories with quirky melodies. And then you've got these epic compositional journeys such as You Enjoy Myself, The Divided Sky, David Bowie with very little lyrics. You go into this, you know, flip side of, you know, Goldie Apparatus and Fluffhead that have both of those qualities. And then you sprinkle in dinner in a movie, foam and contact. It's this completely diverse album of sorts so i you know just so curious for you to break down the songs and tell us how each one was recorded and i mean you said they were live right off the bat which just again i don't know why that blows my mind but i guess with the first studio it does but that's you know live is their thing so yeah so let's start off with fee fee oh fee (laughs) Oh, poor Fee. <laughs> I know, I know. I know. It's tragic. Just, it's tragic. <laughs> it really is. Uh, so, of course, on Fee, they had to use an instrument called a fish, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right, gyro, huh. G-U-I-R-O. And if you Google it, it looks like a fish, and it goes... Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a fish. Huh. So How I kind of pick thought, up one of those things. <laughs> uh, any music store, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Just go into a music store and ask for a fish, and uh, they'll say, "Well, do you want a fish album?" Or yeah, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> so, as everybody is probably totally aware, so for the verses on the song, and I'm not sure whose idea this was, uh, I took Trey's recorded vocal the the final uh, overdub vocal that we did from the 16 track, and I played it through some headphones. Then I mic'd the headphones and re-recorded that back into the mix to give that radio bullhorn sound. So he didn't have a bullhorn in the 
studio with him. No, no, no. The, and, and in fact, I just, no, no, nothing like that. No, it was, it literally a pair of headphones like you're probably wearing right now. And then I just stuck a mic in them. OMG. So am I talking to the inventor of the megaphone on fee? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> sure. I'll, ta- I'll, I'll take credit for that. All right. Sure. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. Go ahead. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, and I don't know, the, the logical thing that was going on in my head sure. was we're telling a story. These are the verses. This is the storyteller. And then we go into the chorus and everything opens up. So I go to the actual uh, real mic without processing it like that. And it, it, it sounds like the whole mix opens up when you hear uh, Trey's vocal just full full bandwidth. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. It, it's a beautiful effect. It works really, really well. No, oh, and it does really open up like that, too. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. So that that's a lot of what of what creates that effect. Mm-hmm. Um, sound effects, sound effects. So you know, uh, Fee and Floyd and all those guys are always fighting and stuff. So uh, the first sound effect is Floyd broke off uh, the neck of a bottle. Mm-hmm. So this was before there were a whole bunch of sound effects libraries out there. There were some. But, you know, not a lot. And uh, sampling was just starting to kind of, you know, eke its way out. Uh, So, you know, we didn't have any samplers at that point. So we needed to make these sound effects ourselves. So for the neck of the bottle, we just got a big cardboard box. And I think, I don't know, if we with a hammer and a bottle. And we just... Played the 16 track back, which had the track of, you know, Fee on it. Yeah. And on cue, one of the lads went and uh, just smashed the bottle. And I think I think we got that one in the first take. Wow. I think we got that one in the first take. Yeah. So uh, there's a term that we used back then called flying something in. And what that basically means is, is that since... You know, we don't have uh, a time-coded playback unit that's synchronized with the 16 track. In order to get something synced up with it, you'd be playing the 16 track and you needed to record something onto it in sync with the music. And you'd have to do it manually, whether it was a sound effect or whether maybe you were playing it off of a CD or maybe you were playing it off of another tape. So you can imagine how difficult it would be to... It's a performance, and when you're dealing with technology, especially CD players back then, they were really wonky. And mm-hmm. you'd hit play and it would like, you know, take like X number of random seconds before it would actually play and what mm-hmm. have you. And this is important when we get to uh, dinner and a movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, second sound effect on Fee. Uh, Fee hits the deck. So <laughs> again, we didn't have a... The sound effect of somebody falling. So one of the band members, and if memory serves, it might have been Fishman. That sounds uh, <laughs> Threw himself on the floor of of one of our ISO rooms, which was actually uh, an old timey ice box 
refrigerator from a restaurant. I think that maybe there was a restaurant in the building that the studio was in at one point. Sure. And we turned... And we, so we turned that into an ISO booth and it had this really interesting kind of a resonant sound to it, especially if someone were to fall on, on the floor or throw themselves on the floor. <laughs> and that took a few takes that, and it hurt. <laughs> <laughs> so he just like stand up star and just like fall down straight or was he like on something? <laughs> it just and, 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 and the... In, the punishing part of it is, is that, again, we didn't have a sampler. So he had to do it in time to the tape oh, wow. playing back. And and the sound had to be right. So I think we did it like three or four times until we got something that sounded really good. And then the, the oof, you know, the, the vocalization, I yeah. think that came out of the same person. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> so that that was actually really amusing. That was a lot of fun. I was gonna say, like, how, you know, the atmosphere must have been them giggling and you guys, you know, trying. Oh. <laughs> yeah, we were all cracking up. <laughs> it it was absolutely hysterical. And it, it was, was this like was... a collaborative type of like, okay, how are we gonna get this sound? You know? Oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Everybody, working. everybody was in on it. Uh, everybody was in on all of this stuff. We we were all throwing stuff against the wall until we came up with something that stuck. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was great. It was great. So so then, of course, Floyd hits the water with astonishing speed. Mm -hmm. So again, no sound effects library. What, you know, how are we going to create somebody splashing into the ocean? Well, we don't have an ocean around. Uh, what are we going to do? So we finally figured out, okay, where who's got the biggest jug that we can seal <laughs> like uh -huh. a big water jug, you know, multiple gallon water jug. So we found one of those. And we kind of put about, I don't know, quarter, three quarters of filled it up with water. Um, and then I sped the 16 track up as fast as it would go. And on cue, someone out in the studio, and I don't remember who it was. It might've been Trey or somebody, or actually, since it was a percussive thing, maybe it was fishing. Mm -hmm. uh, hit play, hit record, and slosh right in the right time. And there were many takes of that until we got it just to right in the pocket, just where it needed to be. Sure, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then did you say something about like backing it up afterwards or something? I believe that we had talked about this. You had like reversed it or something? that's uh, reverse tracking or backwards tracking. That's in another song. Okay. Okay. Great. And, and we, and we will talk about that. Awesome. Awesome. So, and, and then I think the nip, the nipple slice was a piece of paper. You actually just tore the piece of paper. Yeah, I think yeah, so. Yeah. Now, now, so to me, this song is just super different than anything that's is this something i mean I, i'm just you actually were really introducing me to you know the the genesis and and uh and yes and whatnot so with these prog rock bands and i'm really into umphreys mcgee too which i'm turning you on to as well and uh so i mean what style would you put v in is that a prog rock type of style or was that something you'd ever even heard before that type of um song I, I would say that that song has a little bit more, you know, 
co cohesion to it. It, it, it. It's more like a, a regular tune with an A section and a B section and sure. a C section. And uh, yeah, it, I, I would say it might be one of the most accessible songs on the record, frankly, mm. well, with the exception of, con with the exception of contact. Sure. Sure. I mean, that's the song that changed the, everything in my life. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the first song fish song I ever heard. And I was like, I need, to be part of this. This is weird and cool and different. And, you know, it was really, really fun to work on. And it, it really is a great production. I, it, I, I, I mean, to this day I can, you know, I'll put on Junta and I'll go, damn, I love the sound of that song. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's, it's great. You know, and we're moving into a very different type of song, but again, so you enjoy myself. So you enjoy myself is a one of everybody's favorite songs and for me the climax moment live where they right before they break off and go into you know that boy man you know that that piece is live is uh, it's orgasmic it's orgasmic it's the best way I can put it <laughs> you know musically orgasmic so I am just so curious because I you know I've been listening obviously a lot to to Jinta since you and I have started talking and prepping for this interview and, you know, I'd love to hear how this went for you. This might be my favorite track on the album too. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's an awesome piece of music. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it truly is. I, I would definitely put it in the prog category and uh, it, cause it just goes through so many different, it takes you to all these different places and sure. it, it, you get to visit all these colors. It's it's wonderful. Mm -hmm. It's it's really 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 wonderful. Um, and that breakdown, you know, uh, boy man, mm -hmm. what's your feet he driving me to, Ferenzi? And I asked him. <laughs> he never told me. I said, "Okay, are you talking about somebody's feet?" And he said. Well, that's up for you to interpret. <gasps> oh my goodness! I thought almost we had like the secret, <laughs> the no, answer to the secret. <laughs> he wouldn't tell me. He wouldn't tell me. <laughs> you know, t in typical Trey fashion, at least. I mean, I don't. You know, I, I've I've only seen him one time after these sessions after that. But yeah, back then he 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 was pretty in, in, enigmatic about it. it was, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. mysterious. It has something to do with their trip in Italy, I believe. If I if I remember correctly, we've gotten a little bit of answers. But you know, for the longest time, we're like, what are they saying? Like, wash your feet and drive. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's great. And 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 I really I really do love that section. How just just everything just as you say, drives to this huge crescendo mm -hmm. and, uh, and bam, it's like, it just drops down into like this real awesome funk groove, you know? Yes. And, and, and you, you just can't help but go, Oh, this is awesome. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Now, the other interesting thing about you enjoy myself is that that was recorded during the two week session. Oh, okay. So, mm -hmm. So that has a bit of a different sound to it than um, David Bowie, Fee, uh, Golgi Apparatus, and um, Fluffet. Um, that's you know, like I said, when that's when we had the drum booth, and uh, you know, we we did things a little bit differently on that one, and it it's just really super clean sounding to my ear. It, it it's a very clear, clean recording. 
um, some very generous fellow, and I, I don't have his his name or or link in front of me, uh, did a review of the album and and was just kind of going, you know, I can't believe how, you know, they were able to make it so that we could hear everything that everybody was playing all at once. And he continued to say, it almost sounds like Hookalo was kind of like featuring one instrument at one point and then another instrument and then like taking you around and all of these different journeys and what have you. And um, that's something we didn't talk about as far as having everybody around the board uh, mixing. So maybe we can talk about that after we go through this. Sure, sure. Well, and it, you know, it, uh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say, if, if one of us remembers. Yes, yes, definitely. Well, I was going to say, so um, one of the people on Twitter, is this where it is? Um, oh, I'm not going to figure it out now. It's going to take a second. Because the person who you're mentioning, uh, they they mentioned something back on, on one of the posts I did somewhere on the social media um, about this. I'm just trying to see real quick if I can find it. Because... Uh, he was, I'm not going to find it right now. That's too bad. Because he was, because I told him, I was like, oh yeah, no, Gordon sent that to me. He's like, really? Like he didn't even realize that you had seen that. I left a post on his website. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> years, years ago. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, all right. So we've got you enjoy myself and then you are. Well, we're, we're not done. We're, we're not quite done with oh, you good, enjoy good, myself. Good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's talk about crescendos mm-hmm. at the very end of the tune. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have your CDs or whatever, mm-hmm. if you look, if you go back 40 seconds from the end of the tune, you will hear something kind of in the background building up and creating tension and creating tension and creating tension and creating tension, and creating tension until finally. Zzzz, and then, you know, the snaps and wash your feet, see, you know, it's yeah, happening yeah. there. What that is, is a backwards piano. Huh. It, okay, go ahead. Now, now, okay, you're probably, well, what the hell is a backwards piano? So what we did was we flipped the tape over. So it literally played backwards. And... I had Paige play a very loud chord that was in the right key that started exactly at the end of the song. Okay. Okay, so 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 imagine you're listening to the song backwards and there's like nothing and then all of a sudden you know you're hearing this backwards stuff happening sure. which is the tune ending. Uh so you know, he does this brilliant job and just hits this incredible chord and, you know, holds down the pedal so it rings out uh, for 40 seconds. So when you turn the tape back over and you play it and you mix it in, you know, not only do you have the song ending on the crescendo that they normally do, but you have it reinforced with this like that i know exactly so i don't so i don't know how many people have noticed that but we did a bunch of stuff like that throughout the record yeah so that's what that was though because i know exactly what you're talking about when when you say that that's interesting yeah i'm i'm ever since i heard hendrix i 
just went, oh man, I got to do more backwards stuff. Yeah, 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 for sure. And you had mentioned on the Yes album that you recommended for me to listen to, and I apologize, I don't remember the name of it, but that they do a lot of that on, correct? Uh, they probably do on some of them. I can't think of a Yes song right now that, that they did that on. Sure. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a lot of the prog rock bands did that. That was a real, real favorite thing to do. It's just a really trippy song having sound rather having the, uh, the attack, uh, backwards. So it's like, you know, the attack would normally be, but instead it's like, like that. It's just this really otherworldly sound. Yeah, it is definitely. It's very trippy. All right, everybody, thank you so much for joining the 61st episode of Female Centrics with our guest, Gordon Hukalo. And remember that if you would like to check out more of his work or get in touch with him, if you have a band or you know somebody has a band that was interested in recording an album, you can contact him at admin at gdhdigital.com. Please check out his website as well, www.gdhdigital.com. You can also find his IMDB um, online. And next week, we are in two weeks, our part two is going to be starting off with him jumping right into Esther, which is a great story, as well as breaking down the rest of the songs and uh, talking about just some more fun little background secrets of the recording of Junta. So uh, please check that out in a couple weeks. And remember, we are part of the Osiris Podcast Network. And thanks for joining us. Peace.